Welcome to the Everything Early Childhood podcast designed for approved providers, nominated supervisors, and other childcare leaders. This fun, lighthearted, and very serious podcast features weekly episodes on strategy, advice, and conversations with fascinating and inspiring people from across our sector. Join the journey and have access to the tools and inspiration you need to create high-performing childcare businesses. Let's get started. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Everything Early Childhood. Today, we have another amazing special guest for you. We have Andrea Christie David. She is the managing director of Lior, um, and her newest project, she's the managing director of G8 Education Specialized Care Division. So, welcome, Andrea. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks for having me. No worries. So let's start off. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and what got you involved in inclusion? Well, it's been a bit of an organic process, but um, I'm actually a lawyer by background. And um, about four years ago, I saw a little bit of a gap in the early childhood space based around my own personal experience. So I'd used different forms of childcare. I had three children under three. I'm working as a lawyer. My husband's working in IT. And you know, that juggle of drop off and pick up all got a bit much. And yeah. so I wanted to create um, a quality early childhood education offering that was convenient, but was in the home. And I wanted to be able to engage qualified and experienced early childhood educators to do that for families just like me. Mm, so important for them to have access. Yeah, that's right. So this originally was a concept that looked at my needs and I wanted something for my (laughs) children, but um, it evolved pretty quickly because it was not long after I started the business that we were contacted by the in-home care support agency in New South Wales who had come across us and realised that there weren't enough providers in the space, but that what we were doing really captured the essence of what in-home care needed to be, so focusing on quality education really looking at high standards and um, overseeing the work of the educators. So they invited us to become part of the scheme. We got approved and then we had huge demand. Um, We had so many families across New South Wales that needed our support. Not long after that, we expanded into other states and we are approved to operate um, in all states except for South Australia under in-home care. Um, And then because we managed to really attract a lot of families with children with complex needs Mm -hmm. we built up a lot of expertise in that area so that was children who couldn't go to mainstream services because of their own needs or their parents um, health or medical issues and we really needed to build up our competence in supporting these children because of that we then became an NDIS provider because we wanted to work out how we could apply what we were doing to achieve NDIS goals and early intervention. Oh, so Lior, you applied for NDIS to be approved NDIS provider? Yes. Yeah, so wow, how got, was that um, process? Oh, yeah, well, being a lawyer helps. Um, Good, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that process, you know, it's a lot of work to begin with. You have to comply with all the, all the standards um, and then it's a waiting game, of course, to get mm. that approval through. So we're really happy once that finally came through. Yeah, awesome. So how have you helped, um, I guess, because Lior was your um, predominantly focusing on in-home. Um, yep. So what sort of services and partnerships did you build up in your offering with children with those complex needs and what patterns have you been finding? So with the in-home care families, those children have to have been um, 
unable to have their needs met in mainstream services. So what we found was we were seeing a lot of children who were excluded and that really heightened our lens from an inclusion perspective. That's where we've seen, you know, potentially how we can advise other services, um, ECC services on inclusion because we're seeing the excluded children. And what that means is they might have a compromised immune system, they might have challenging behaviours, they might have a disability, or they might have experienced trauma. And we have been able to support educators in centres to transition these child in, children into centres and then upskilling the educators in centres on the child's needs. That's amazing. So you're able to obviously facilitate that transition. Yeah, that's right. So it means that we're sort of holding the child and the family's hand, but we're also sharing our knowledge with the centre and it's a smooth transition for all involved. But it's also really putting the child at the centre. So we're collaborating, making sure everybody around the child is collaborating for that child's needs. Yeah, it's so important. We work with a lot of inclusion specialists, like in the child might have an OT, a speech therapist, um, a psychologist, like you name it, the whole package. But yeah. the trickiest thing we find is that they all have different goals. Yeah, so, right. so we yeah. develop a holistic plan. Yeah, so okay. The children have one learning and development plan with us and that looks at their NDIS goals, it looks at their allied health goals and their early years learning framework goals. Now that in itself poses a bit of a challenge to the NDIS because the NDIS doesn't want to hear about education. Wow. Um, but we've done a lot of pushback and advocacy actually around that. And we've said, well, just because the child has an NDIS plan doesn't mean they shouldn't be entitled to education. And the best way for the child to upskill and retain these skills is actually through education. So we embed the child's allied health therapies into their educational program that's amazing I love that and it has to be integrated it has to be that holistic approach that you're talking about because we just found that without that it doesn't work because everyone had all different goals and the poor child had no idea what was going on in one aspect that this was their goal so yeah I love that you've created that that's amazing and so how do you um so currently in your role as G8 education specialized care division so tell me about that and tell me what amazing initiatives you're introducing so we were well I was approached by G8 education um, almost a year ago to look at whether we wanted to partner with them in terms of improving outcomes for children in, in home care in the NDIS. Then at the end of last year, we became part of the GA Education Group. And um, in, in my transition across, I'm still running Lior, but I'm, I'm, I've been given the role of setting up a specialised care division within G8. And my role is also seeing on the executive leadership team of the organisation. And that means influencing decision-making from not only a child-centered practice, but um, an inclusion perspective. So one of the initiatives we're about to roll out is looking at how to support centers with their inclusion needs. And that's everything from consulting on their strategic inclusion plans to delivering services such as mentoring, professional development, um, therapies in centers, and again, this sort of child-centered practice, no matter where the child is. So whether that might be part-time in-home care, part-time in-center, working collaboratively with everybody supporting that child to figure out a model that is child-centered and achieves their goals. Oh, you know, when you told me this, I was like, oh, it's about time. Yeah. I'm so, uh, and it makes me so happy that, because a lot of, um, you know, individual services, they may have an allied health team um, that they refer to and they look at, but it can become quite expensive to work with them on a one-to-one basis. Yeah. Um, so I love, and it's such a good idea and such a big organisation such as G8 um, should have this in place. 
Yes, that's right. Look, and we are looking at having delivering these services outside GA as okay. well. Okay. We do think that we've got this knowledge that we're hoping to be able to share with other ECC services. So Beautiful. when we're doing inclusion consulting, that'll be um, across the board. But we are hoping to have our allied health team rotating around centres as well. So that means, again, when you talk about, you know, families seeing therapists, they're sitting on long wait lists, they've got to keep their job, they're struggling to get from appointment to appointment. If we can be based in centres, that means that, you know, we're going where the family's at. We can hopefully doing do the therapies while the child is at the centre and the family's not doing the running around. Yeah, it's so much more convenient for the family to get that therapy done um, in early childhood. And I think... Um, it also allows the service to really work in collaboration with the allied health professional as well. That's right. So we um, the, we will speak to the family, we'll speak to the allied health therapist, paediatrician, and we'll incorporate all of their recommendations into the goals and the learning and development plan. And then where we're transitioning into centres, we'll pass that on, we'll give guidance and recommendations, and our educator will be on site to help the educators understand the goals. Yeah, perfect. And how will it work? Will you get, so for example, um, if a child needs, or should we start right at the beginning? So let's just say, how do we identify um, a child that may need um, some inclusion or some support? So we find a lot of people are saying that there are challenging behaviours or there's complex needs, Mm. but it's really about drilling down and figuring out what's causing that because you don't know what's happened in that child's day before they've got to the centre. You don't know what's going on in the family life. Um, You don't know if there's domestic violence or there's some sort of trauma that's causing that. So when you come from an inclusion lens, it's really about sort of taking that judgment away and thinking about what's going on here where are those challenging behaviours coming from rather than just saying, you know, we've got um, oppositional behaviours or the child's being defiant or there's a lack of emotional regulation. It's thinking about what's the cause, what's the why. Mm. So when um, centres are engaging with either their inclusion partner or a service like us, it's about us understanding what the needs are of the child. So that might involve us actually going on site and doing a centre visit, um, speaking to the centre manager, the educational leader or the key Um, educator who's working with that child and finding out what's going on we might speak to the parent and speak and discuss how has the child tracked over the last year has anything significant changed has there been a change to routine change to family structure um, moving house any trauma that's happened and then it's sort of a process of elimination to work out what might really be going on here then if it is a medical or a disability type um aspect then we might make a recommendation to the family to speak to one of our allied health or speak to their pediatrician their gp um, or even contact the ndis to go down the early childhood approach for which they don't actually need a diagnosis so making sure that the family's got the appropriate direction to take the next steps and do you support the family to um, take those next steps yeah that's right so whether it's in-home care we'll refer them and and support them in making their application. If it's NDIS, we'll we'll give them guidance on how they can get their NDIS funding. And then once they get that funding, we'll help them figure out how they might be able to use that, whether it's with us or with with another provider, making sure they're gonna get the most out of their plan. Yeah, it's fascinating, because I think NDIS rolled out, was it two years ago now? So it's, no, it's a bit longer than that. (laughs) In, um, In 
WA. It was last yeah. year where WA came into oh, line okay. with the rest of the country. But yeah, it's, a, it's a, just over seven years old. Now. Seven years, gosh, I'm talking about two years. Um, yeah. But you, but it's so funny because like we know it's there and we know it exists. But I think the um, understanding it's so hard to access and you just mentioned that you don't need to have a diagnosis potentially to be able to access it so what do families need to know or need um, to do in order to access NDIS funding to support their child? The family might have been spoken to by the centre manager or their GP who might have made some recommendations and then they just need to have a letter so that could come from the centre manager the ECT the educational leader or a general practitioner, and they might be able to make a recommendation saying we've identified there might be some delay, there might be some speech um, challenges. We, we think that the child is displaying these types of behaviours and we recommend that the family approach um, the NDIS and seek um, funding for under the early childhood approach. Yeah, okay. And so what sort of... Um like behaviours or um, things have you seen that to be successful using that method? We've seen quite a lot of children with global developmental delay. Mm -hmm. What that means at the outset, though, is it might only be one or two delays. So it might be speech delay. uh, It might be a a loss of speech, which is common with ASD. So where the child had, had certain speech competence and cognitive abilities in language, but then they lost that potentially around the age of three. We've also seen uh, children with um, gross motor skills where there's challenges in terms of crossing the midline or and where that's also combined with potentially another area. So whether that's um, emotional regulation, speech delay, So usually looking at a combination of factors if it's not a severe disability. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. Because I did hear that they have to have two diagnoses in order to qualify for NDIS. Uh, Look, it's a bit of a grey area. (laughs) That's not written down um, in black and white. Yeah. But generally that's what people find is there's usually two areas of identification. But if a child has global developmental delay, then, you know, they're not going to, the child is unlikely to achieve the same milestones as their peers if they don't get access to the early childhood approach. So that doesn't necessarily mean that they need to. You're unlikely to get um, ADHD funded under the NDIS mm-hmm. unless it's coupled with something else. Okay. So those are the kind of things that you might see. You might only get NDIS funding if you've got two, yeah. but it depends on what it is because there might be just one single um, disability that prevents the child from achieving their goals in line with their peers yeah okay no that's really good to know so with the waiting list being so high to see allied health professionals ot speech therapists like the waiting lists are over six months particularly coming out of covid do you have any recommendations or tips to help families get in to see people a lot quicker if you are willing to do telehealth it's a good way to get started we found that, yes, speech pathology can be a bit challenging over, over Zoom, but it's at least something rather than just waiting on a wait list because we know that early intervention is so crucial and getting started as early as possible is the most important factor to success. The other thing that you can do is find out what adaptations the centre might be able to make or your preschool or um, your in-home care educator, whoever you're working with in in terms of early childhood, what they can do to adapt your child's program. What could they do to incorporate any recommendations 
that you might have found from your GP or just from making that initial approach, even though you're on a wait list. And you might want to ask the allied health um, professionals, is there anything I can do while I'm on the wait list? Is there okay. anything I can get started on beforehand and, and work towards? And that at least is getting you some steps further. Now, what we are trying to do, because we all know what the workforce shortages are like at the moment, yeah. is we've got a team of allied health professionals and we're building up a team of allied health assistants. So these are people who work under the supervision of our, ther of our allied health professionals and deliver therapies to children in a faster time frame. So without waiting on that wait list. So we're building up our team of allied health assistants and they can be educators or they might be people who are looking at studying allied health or people who just have an interest in complex needs. There's no minimum qualification requirement and we do the on-the-job training for them. Yeah, that's such a great idea. Why not? And I know there's a lot of people, um, particularly in early childhood, who may be looking for a different avenue and have a um, specialised interest or passion in inclusion or working with children with a, with needs. And what we've found is the educators who come to work with us have almost all worked in a centre. So we generally get people who come from a centre, but a lot of them actually feeling like they're at the end of their career in the space. They're like, I'm done. I can't stay in this sector and then they come to us and they sort of reignite that passion because they go back to why they came into this space and that's to build relationships with children and see learning and development outcomes and because they're one-on-one -on -one, it really um, gives them that spark again and we have people with us who are like I'm not going anywhere <laughs> there's no other job that I'm going to now oh. and, and sometimes they do it most of our educators are part-time so they might be working in the center a couple of days a week and then they're working with us a couple of days a week oh that's so perfect really well. yeah that's amazing and people like life's too short like we need to find what makes us happy um that's and we right. yeah we also need to I, I really am a big believer in what lights us up um, so I think if that's inclusion and it's working with children um, to, to give them the skills and go for it. That's right. And, and I've been so inspired by our educators. Like we did a video series last year and I went to this family's home to record it. And you can, the, you can see the video on our um, YouTube page, but there's this beautiful little girl named Michelle and she's in a, just, she's in a wheelchair and she's um, got significant global developmental delay. But the educator that was working with her during the filming, she told us, you know, please don't stand there because Michelle doesn't like it. Now, you or I probably wouldn't have been able to see that in Michelle. We wouldn't have been able to understand that she was communicating in that way. But the bond that the educator had with her to be able to understand that, it blew my mind and it just made me so in awe of this educator's passion and just heart for what she actually did. Oh, absolutely. Oh, definitely. So let's talk about the um, inclusion in general. So what what does inclusion mean under the EYLF and from a children's rights perspective? It's really important to remember where inclusion comes from because we know as people what it feels like to be excluded and we also know what it feels like to be included. But when we're working in this space, it's actually a much higher obligation that we have. So, yes, it's covered in the EYLF, it's covered in legislation, it's covered in um, disability frameworks. But in order to make a child feel included and make sure that they've got the best start in life is to actually give them the platform for learning. There's nothing like 
walking into a room and seeing nobody that looks like you and feeling like you don't belong. So imagine being a child and feeling that way, whether it's because there's group time and they just don't want to participate in group time or they've got a sensory aversion and you're doing Play-Doh. You know, it's, it's all those sorts of things where making sure that we're meeting the needs of the child whilst also meeting the needs of the group is really crucial to making sure that every child feels included. Oh, and I think it's even little things like we had a child once who said like none of the dolls look like her. Yes, yes. And I, it made me so like it's something that at that point in time we we hadn't even put a lot of thought or reflection into. Um, but having her state state that it, it broke my heart. Um, and one of the things I say about being um, like I'm from minority background, my parents are from Sri Lanka, and one of the things I say about inclusion and diversity is it actually takes a lot of courage to say things like that to be brave and say hey I actually feel excluded can you do something about that because a lot of people don't have the courage to say that so to be able to step up and say hey there's no doll like imagine how amazing she's gonna be <laughs> yeah it is yeah oh it was huge but um I guess what are some things that we can look out for with children that they might say or they might do to give an indication that they may not be feeling included so it might be those things like not wanting to engage in group activities it might be what we term tantrums or big behaviors at certain transition times because that might be overwhelming for them. That might just be a lot of change in a very short space of time. Also looking at when those behaviours occur. So have you had a change in your rostering? Have you had a new educator come in? Have, have they lost a connection with their key educator? What was the reason that that child started to behave differently? Also thinking about what we can do about the environment. So there was a great story the other day at the G8 conference, actually, that one of the regional managers had picked up on a child who did have some, you know, disruptive behaviours, but it wasn't until they further investigated they realised that child had a vision impairment. Yes. So, of course, they were not able to engage and they looked like they were being defiant, mm. but actually they couldn't engage because they couldn't see it properly and they couldn't see what the other child, children could see. So, yeah, it was really about that again just turning that lens of going what's really going on here rather than looking at blaming the child or you know we're stressed and we don't have the time necessarily to allocate to it but that that's why critical reflection is so key in our industry to sit back and go and think later what what's really going on there yeah right and do you have any so what's really going on there um do you have any other key questions or um yeah tips around some questions with how services can critically reflect around inclusion well, one of the things I'm really passionate about is children's voices. Mm-hmm. So like you just heard, you, your story just then was a child using their voice. So engaging children in decision-making, asking them how they feel about the environment, about the activities that happen, what do they really want to do? That's one really simple and easy way of doing it. The other is, and if centres have done their strategic inclusion plans, they would have gone through this process. But one of the things is just looking at your community. What Uh, is the demographic of the area in which you're supporting? Have you looked into it? Or are you just getting lots of the same families coming through the door all the time? Are you getting different families? Are you getting families who don't speak English, who are a different religion to the dominant religion in the centre? How would you handle inquiries about meal preparation if it was required under their religion, for example? Mm. So have you looked at your local area and seen what the demographic is? So, for example, how many people um, were born overseas? How many people speak a language other than English? And 
the Australian Bureau of Statistics, CIFA data, NDIS data is all a great place to start. So having a look at your area and examining that to begin with. The second thing you would do is look at what are your current practices? So what have you actually tried? What's worked and what hasn't worked? Because it's equally important to look at what hasn't worked as it is to look at what has worked. So mm. why didn't it work? What could you have done differently? Who should you have consulted? Should you have asked people in your community? Should you have asked educators? What were their thoughts? And then also leaning into the expertise that you have. So that might be educators in your centre, it might be families, it might be children themselves and making sure you're building practices around that knowledge. Yeah, and so with your the different cultures and the values, um, a lot of services come to me and they have difficulty getting input or information from families. Um, do you have any advice or any tips around how to get more input from families or the community? I think making it as easy as possible. Yeah, <laughs> and convenient, way. yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, that might be sending them the same link to a survey three times because okay. it might take the third time. Whereas, you know, doing paper-based, there's people are doing trying to trying to do pick up, you know, it's not necessarily going to happen. And and also everyone can see them filling out the survey, so they might not want to provide mm. frank advice when it's um, not anonymous. So I think doing surveys, also potentially engaging in online information sessions for parents who work and they can't be there for, for school um, for pick up and drop off. Yep. So how can you engage them even though you're not seeing them? And then looking at community leaders. So you might have a good paediatrician in the local area. You might have a good general practice, a medical centre in the area. How could you engage with them to get the word out about your services and, and what type of educational philosophy you have? Yeah, and we found um, the local primary schools, um, part of their role or part of their um, educators now in their system is to have a community liaison officer. And we've been finding that they're just a, an amazing source of information um, about that, that predominant or that community. Yeah, that's a great idea. Um, as well. Um, so with so what are some other practical things um, that educators can do to adopt an inclusion lens within their service? One of the things that you learn as you go through the inclusion journey is just how many barriers there are to inclusion. It's an interesting thing once you start working in this space to look at scenarios with a different lens. So for example, I had to go to the passport office office recently and I had to wait in line and then I got to the front of the queue and then I got told I didn't know when my daughter's passports were going to be ready and I might get another email in a couple of days time and I would just have to come back I left that process feeling so frustrated but not just for me but because if I had a disability if I had insecure work or if I worked in a, or lived in a regional area how would I be able to do that and then I look at the systems that are failing people. Those are systems that are creating barriers to inclusion. So I would really recommend that centres start thinking about what is it that's preventing families or children from accessing our service? It could be something as simple as the fact that you're on the second story of the building and that family might just find it too challenging to get there every day, to get up and down their stairs or to navigate the lift. It could be something as simple as the fact that you're website doesn't outline whether you've got educators that speak different languages or come from different backgrounds or you don't publicize your brochure in different languages so it's really thinking about what's preventing families and children from coming to us why do they feel like we're not the right place for them 
Mm. And it's fascinating you say that because I remember reading um, somewhere that there's certain cultures that unless they're represented in your service, they won't come. Yeah, and, I mean, it makes sense, right? Mm. Because like I said before, if you walk into a room and there's nobody that looks like you, yeah. you don't exactly feel like you belong. Mm. Um, and, and when we talk about being belonging and becoming, it's like where is that environment for that child to feel like they um, have been seen? Mm. I actually went to some GH centres recently and I went into one and as soon as I got there, this gorgeous little girl who was from an Indian background and was nonverbal ran up to me and put her arms around my legs and tried to communicate with me. And from my perspective, that was inclusion. She saw my skin colour and thought, you look like me. You probably look like my auntie or my grandma or someone. And just felt like she could connect with me. And I thought, yeah, that was really moving. And even the fact, actually, I had some G8 centre managers who came up to me and said, I was so happy to see a woman of colour in leadership. You know, so that's why we need diversity and inclusion. We need to be seen. We need people to feel warm and welcome and even if you don't have educators who are from those cultures what else can you do what what can you do to show respect and um and an open door for people of different cultures and backgrounds oh a hundred percent and it just um me growing up in australia like i'm quite um privileged I'll use the word privileged I've been watching a lot of um movies and episodes you know on white privilege and stuff and it it is it's so prominent like once you know about it but growing up you know we obviously we didn't talk about a lot of those things so for us it's just not part of our life um but it's been coming up a lot in conversations with a lot of my friends recently about what their experiences have been, um, you know, coming over to Australia, starting school. Um, you know, they said even the difference with the lunches, like what they brought for lunch. Yes. <laughs> they said they brought um, a wrap instead of a sandwich and, um, you know, and just their experience of being so um, like – almost I mean I I'm curious like I like to know about things and I like to know about different cultures um but they said they felt so judged so secluded um and yeah that it was just a horrible feeling like they almost didn't want to eat oh yeah I've been there (laughs) I used to get um like for any people who are listening that know Sri Lankan food um we used to get these things called string hoppers and my mum would mix them up with curry and that would be like chicken curry and yellow potato curry and you know nowadays people love it right we've really come along yeah since I was at school where people like wow I love that food but when I was at school you know people would teach you and they'd be like what's that you've got that smells you know so you would really not want as much as you loved the food as a child you didn't want to bring it to school because you knew you were going to get teased oh and how has that impacted your journey now with moving into inclusion yeah, hugely, I think. Um, and I feel like I do it a lot more at the senior level that I'm at. Obviously, the business and Lior delivers inclusion for children because that's really something I'm passionate about. Mm. And that's with my amazing educators. But in terms of leadership, I'm sort of flying the flag for inclusion and diversity at senior leadership roles. So I'm on the Board of Relationships Australia and I've been really passionate about diversity and inclusion there. And again, at G8, I'm really trying to raise that profile in terms of why it's important to see diverse leaders at all levels of the organisation. Oh, a hundred percent. I agree. I, and I didn't realize how, um, 
non-prominent it was or how much of a big deal it was for people of colour to step into those roles. That's right. Yeah, yeah. like I've been listening to this podcast um, and it's the first of its kind and she's talking about like corporate leadership um, and she's a woman of colour and she said like I – I've been often in different roles, the token woman of colour. Um, she said often yes. often she'd look around the room and there was no one else of colour, like she was it. Um, and then any time they wanted a perspective or um, some type of feedback around, oh, are we being offensive? It was like, well, yeah. what are, are you looking at me as the judge of that? Like I'm one person, I'm a person. Yeah, um, that's right. And- and my First Nations brothers and sisters feel the same way. You know, yeah, how can she there. be that judge? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you carry you carry the whole opinion of, and input of your whole background, which you don't, of course, because you, you're only one person and you can't speak for everyone. And that's so heavy. Like that's such a heavy that's right. burden to bear. Absolutely. I think that's what I've found as well. I'm like, well, don't put it all on me. Yeah. <laughs> speak for everyone. Yeah, oh, exactly. And, you know, like we've even got um, in our first podcast, we're talking about um, to a male, a male leader in our sector, and he was just adamant. He's like, I do not want to be seen as a male in this sector. I just want to be seen as, um, you know, early childhood leader. Yeah, I feel the same way about female leaders as well, you know. Yes. Called, like, what do you call it, girl boss or yes. you know, female entrepreneur. Like, no, just an entrepreneur, just a just a manager, just a leader. Like it doesn't have to be female, it doesn't have to be gendered. Mm. But it was interesting to hear that similar concept with women of colour, women from different cultures. Like they, they don't want to be seen even though that's such an important part of who they are and their background and their heritage. They don't want to be seen as that. They just want to be seen as, um, you know, what they are, equal to, you know, others. I've thought about that too and I agree that, you know, you don't want to be seen in that way but sometimes I think you just got to sometimes get the seat at the table and then work <laughs> your, your magic once you're there. So even if that means you're getting the token role, it's still something and mm. you've just got to turn it into a, from a token role into a valid um, influential role. Oh, 100%. And then imagine they're, they're turning around and being like, oh, wow, like you're really intelligent. I, you I, know I mean, stuff. I've had that, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I definitely had that. They're like, wow, you're really great. Like you've got this huge influence. And you're like, like, of course I do. Yeah. 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 So well, you take what you can get, I guess. Oh, no, but step up into that. Like own That's it. Right, yeah. Exactly. I love that perspective. Um, so you've said here, so how can services adopt a child-centred holistic approach to inclusion? The best way to do that is to look at it from the child's perspective. And that's also children who aren't necessarily a service. So when you're talking inclusion, it's not just about a particular child because too often we speak to centres who might have a strategic inclusion plan or an inclusion plan or an individualised learning program and it is just about one child. Well, that's not actually inclusion. Inclusion is making sure that there are other children who might not currently be able to be supported by your centre but that you're working towards ways that you can make them feel included. When it comes to looking at it from the child-centered lens, it's everything. It's from your quality improvement program. It's from your, to your weekly learning programs. It's how you write reports to parents. It's how you write observations. It's looking at things from a growth mindset perspective as opposed to deficits. So then it's, the next step is to think about what changes could I make 
that could achieve better outcomes for children in my service and children who are not attending my service? How could I then create an environment or create programs that assist them in achieving their outcomes, irrespective of their skills, abilities, gender, cultural background, or any other limitations that they might have? How are you removing the barriers to those limitations and encouraging them to achieve their learning and development outcomes, no matter where their starting point is? Mm, so oh, it's such a big thing isn't it but we don't I don't think a lot of services place it as a high priority even though they should be well I look I think everybody wants to focus yeah. on inclusion I think the reality is that the day is full on the weeks are full on worse we've got some of the worst workforce shortages in in our working memory um, and I think that everybody's sort of trying to do the best they can what we're trying to do with a lot of the work that we do in the inclusion space is just trying to get people to change their mindset mm. so that they're not necessarily relying on additional resources they're not necessarily relying on external funding but they're changing their practices quickly and easily so they adopt inclusive practices rather than thinking it's another job on my to-do list if that makes sense yeah so, so not it's, thinking yeah. about it yeah as as an extra work but just embedding it into everyday practice mm which we can do with a lot of things. And I think it stems from in order to do that, we need to have the knowledge to be able to do that. And I think it's one thing, obviously, learning, doing professional development, but it's another thing to practice. And then obviously the more you practice, the more it becomes part of your normal everyday practice. And it's okay to fail. Yeah. You know, one of the things I t- say to my team is if you're going to fail, fail fast and then learn from it and move on. Love There's that. no point sitting there and just procrastinating because you worry about failing you may as well try something and learn from the child learn from the educator learn from the family learn from the environment and adapt it and move on because otherwise you're just stagnant and you're you're sort of in this paralysis because you're worried that it's not going to work that's okay because even if you've tried something and it hasn't worked it's actually taught you what not to do and it's shaped what you're going to do next oh I'm 100% believer in there's no such thing as failure it's just another opportunity to learn that's right, exactly. Yeah. So it, when it comes to inclusion as well, it's better that we try something. You know, we might get things wrong. We might do something that might not be the perfect fit for a cultural practice, mm. but at least you've tried, at least you've had a go. And then, as I said, if, you, if you're looking at it from this child-centred, collaborative and holistic perspective, you consult with the family, with the um, allied health or medical specialists that the child is working with or you make referrals so there's lots of opportunities to make sure that you're trying things and you're moving forward yeah because I think a lot of educators can feel a bit a little bit nervous about that I know a conversation I just had literally um what day is it today Monday <laughs> literally last well last week now um yeah we we're talking about um with reconciliation week last week we were talking about um indigenous perspectives and incorporating those into our program and still a lot of educators are so nervous there's a lot of um you know consultants and representatives out there that you know they're like no don't it's tokenistic don't do it um yeah so how do you do you come back to just um doing it or rather than not I still think yeah you just have a go right like do your research you can get so many free resources lately online ask your peers ask those amazing forums on Facebook you know just ask people for ideas and have a go because it might be something as simple as for Chinese New Year you had 
um, some symbolism at the front door to respect people from a Chinese background. Like that might just be something that they really resonate with. And it's as simple as that. So it's at least just having a go rather than um, avoiding it altogether. And that's such an easy thing to do, isn't it? Just put something up to represent their culture at the time of their celebration. And we all know what that feels like, right? When you go and you're like, oh, somebody's, you know, heard me. Like it's nothing that, you know, if you've travelled overseas, you'll know anytime you hear an Australian accent, you suddenly feel a little bit more like somebody around is yes. just like me. So imagine that same sentiment when you're walking into a centre and, and somebody sees something written in their language or their flag or whatever it might be, they automatically will feel a bit more at home. And it's funny you say that because a lot of my friends, their best memories when they travel overseas are going to Aussie bars. <laughs> <laughs> like they'll seek out Aussie bars overseas um, for what reason I don't know but it, it does it helps them to feel well, connection, connection. Really, yeah like you, at the end of the day yes we all you know everybody loves seeing new things and learning new things but there's still that place for connection and wanting to feel safe and wanting to feel at home and and that's what children are looking for especially those children who just have that little bit of trauma going on or they have a disability they need that attachment and that comfort and security just a little bit more than other people. Yeah, and I find that with anyone, like anyone you meet, anyone new as an adult, as a child, I find the first thing that you do is try to find something in common and That's something right. you can yeah. connect over. We're humans, like we are social beings, so we want to connect with other people. Um, and so that means we're looking for relatability, we're looking for similarity, like-mindedness, but that doesn't mean that where you see children who are not connecting, it doesn't mean that, you know, they're you know they're different and they need to be excluded it's just about figuring out what works for them yeah 100% and you know what image came to my mind Andrea have you seen the photo it's two little girls um one of them is a little girl of color one of and then the other one is not and um literally in the, they're just wearing the same outfit but this one little girl she's so excited she goes up to the other girls she goes oh we're twins we're twins oh. and for her she didn't see the color of her skin she didn't see any of that she just saw they had matching clothes on and they were the same and you know what I went through that my experience myself when I was about five or six in primary school I remember saying something to my friends about being the same and then one of them not vindictively but said but you're not your skin is different and that was the penny drop moment where I was like oh I am different but the amazing thing about children is they're not born with bias they're not born with prejudice Bias is acquired from the environment yeah. around them. Yeah. They're born with this beautiful innocence of just seeing everybody the same. Like I've had to ask my children when they're describing someone at school and being really careful about not putting my prejudices and my biases on how I describe that person. I'm like trying to think, how do I ask when yes. they have dark hair or are they short hair or <laughs> do they wear glasses, you know, without yeah. saying, are they Asian or are they, you know? So it's just those biases that we have as we grow older and making sure that children don't have them. Yeah, and how do we focus more on that? Like as educators, as people, um, how do you think we focus a little bit more on, yeah, like not putting our own biases, even um, subconscious biases that we're not even aware of, onto others? An easy one is gender. Gendered toys, gendered outfits, gendered storybooks making sure that we're really equal and fair in what we're promoting. So we're giving children, girls trains and science books just as much as we're giving them to the boys. And it's, you know, it is decades and decades of, of 
it being ingrained in us, right? That when we automatically think of certain jobs like an engineer, most of the population would think of that as a man. Mm. So we have to trump that with children. You know, stories, nursery rhymes, can we change the he to she? Um, things like that that I think are really easy for us to do in the early childhood space and actually will have a big impact. Yeah, for a lifetime. Absolutely. And that was my next question. I'm glad you brought it. What's your thoughts on equity, equality? Yeah. So, well, my when I was working as a lawyer, I worked in the human rights space. So, oh, so um, it makes sense. Yeah, okay. So that's um, you know, it was a lot of the work that I did was around equality and um, people having equal access to justice. So it does it definitely came across as me to the early childhood mm. space. Um, but I think yeah, the difference between equality and equity is that. Um, really giving people a seat at the table and doing whatever they can to make sure they have that seat at the table. So we did a session recently on inclusion, um, uh, did like a panel discussion and we had um, Suzanne Cook from KU Inclusion Support Services and she gave a really good example when she goes into centres and where an educator said, look, that little child needs a sensory toy. They always want this sensory toy when it comes to group time and I just feel like it's not really fair to the other children because they don't have a sensory toy. And Suzanne said, well, it's actually just like wearing glasses. I don't need glasses to see, but another person might actually need glasses to see. That's their tool. So that sensory toy is just like the glasses. Yeah, it's really no different. It's about giving children equal access to education and care. And if that means that they need additional tools or resources, then so be it. But it means that they're included. Oh, absolutely. I love that. It's just that additional, and it's true. I hear it all the time in services too. It's not fair, but yeah, what's fair and what's just. That's right. And Mm. it's also just about making sure everybody has access. So that could even be your educators. It could be your families, you know, do your educators have the ability to fill out a complex job application form or do they, you know, just need to be able to talk to you over the phone. So it's about removing all of those barriers. Yeah, and it's fascinating because we have had a few um, families um, who may have been dyslexic, so they couldn't actually fill out the enrolment application and we all know what they look like and how lengthy they can be. Um, So it was really about what what could we provide and how could we help them. And they were even initially nervous to even, um, like, let us know that that was a barrier for them. And I think it's also about speaking up, like, in those situations. to So for somebody to be able to say, look, that family actually can't fill out that form. Mm. So how can you expect them to do that? Like um, Sharon Williams, who's the Chief Financial Officer at GH, she just recently told me a story. She, she's involved in um, AF, um, touch footy. And there was a child who had not enrolled properly but got all the way through the grand finals and they stripped his team of their award because he wasn't appropriately enrolled in the sport but when they dug a bit deeper they realized you know his mum had a lot of stuff going on on her plate she had trauma she just didn't have the skills to be able to fill in the online enrollment form plus who knows if she even had access to the internet so again when you look at barriers like what's happening there that we're making everybody feel like they should be able to have the same level of competence, the same level of education, the same level of language ability, the same access to internet, things mm. like that. So, you know, to Sharon's credit, she's sort of, uh, you know, fighting that fight for inclusion for that child and trying to make sure that there's justice. Oh, thank goodness. And what is it? Are the parents taking it too serious that they wanted the other yeah. team to win? Like who, who, who found, like investigated this to, to find all of this out? 
But the thing is, until you come at things from an inclusion lens, you don't see things that way. Right? Okay. You just think everybody's got to fill on up the same page. Got to, yeah. Mm. Everybody's got to queue up at the passport office. Everybody's got to, you know, do things the same way. When you turn your mind to looking at things from an inclusion lens, it really does open up a different perspective because all of a sudden you've gone from looking at things from the perspective of the people that you see, you talk to, you go out to dinner with, you see at your centres, whoever, they're the same people all the time. Mm. You've got to start thinking about the people that you're not seeing. Mm. Who are the people who are not getting the same access to things that you're getting? Who are the people that you don't have regular conversations with that might have different points of view to you and might have different levels of access and privilege, like you said? Mm. You know, what is it that they're missing out on and how can you create um, access and avenues for them to get the same privilege but how do you do that because I find I mean I am I'm a curious person like I love and I'll talk to everyone and I'm genuinely interested to hear about people and their stories I think one thing that comes to my mind is like inclusion is just treating each and every person as an individual and the individual that they are Um, but then the other thing is like if this is a circle that you associate in these are the families the community how would you go out of your way to access or to um, interact with with people that may not so that you have those other perspectives because you only know what you know right yeah it might be things like looking for community groups that are different to you looking for community leaders that have a different faith or a different background um and it's just education you know it's informing yourself we're here to deliver education to our youngest minds it's our obligation to educate ourselves about what their needs might be and the needs of children that we're not seeing so i think really informing yourselves and if you are looking at an area say for example you're in an area that has let's say 30 percent um migrant population but you've actually got zero migrant population enrollments at your centre mm. how would you go about it how would you achieve it what sort of steps would you take you might want to co-design it you want to might get a few community leaders together and say how could we meet those needs because it's not until you ask those questions with all ignorance and with all fear and with all mm. prejudice you still need to ask the questions and you need to think what is the information that I need to be able to make an informed decision and to make a decision that's in the best interest of people who need to be included Yeah, that's amazing. I love that advice. Um, So my question to you is, what has surprised you the most with your journey with inclusion? That's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) I think, to be be fair, when I first um, went down the in-home care route with Lior and we became an in-home care provider, I think I was pretty heartbroken at seeing the situation for some of these children, to see them excluded from services, um, letters saying they were excluded, um, which they need, unfortunately, they need evidence that they've been excluded, but then to see it in black and white, that they were being excluded because of their behaviours or their disability, that really broke my heart. I think the other thing I've realised is just how many families are battling this you know they're battling exclusion they're battling trying to navigate diagnosis going from appointment to appointment they're trying to get into the NDIS they're getting rejected they don't get enough funds yeah there are so many families out there doing that um and it makes me you know just look at ways to be able to improve access for them and how can I use as you said my privilege because I do have privilege as well even though I'm um, a person of color how do I use my privilege my education and my skills to improve outcomes for those people 
Yeah, and I love it. So it's fired you up for your journey even more and to spread it on like such a bigger scale. Yeah, that's what we loved about being invited to be part of G8 was for me that was the opportunity to improve our scale and increase our impact and just create positive outcomes for more children. Mm, Love it. Love it so much. And I think it's something that we should all think about but we don't do it enough. That's right. I think, yeah, you have to really put yourself in the shoes of others. I mean, one of the things I heard many, many years ago is that prejudice and bias is about fear of the other. So a lot of racism, a lot of um, bullying, it comes from fear. It comes from insecurity. So let's just take that away. Let's take away the fear Mm. and let's look at it as a superpower that we can actually use that lens of looking at things from other people's perspectives in a way that creates a platform to allow them to be included. 100% love it. It's so true. And I naturally I naturally have that, like not gift, I'm not going to call it a gift, but I have that ability to be able to see things from others, other people's perspectives. Yeah. But And so I take for granted that not everybody is like that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it is actually quite hard, especially if you, like I said at the start, if you've growing up with the same people that look like you you've got you know you've got the same children and families enrolling at your service they're all the same right so why do you have to think about other people because you know you've got full enrollments you've got no issues with um, maintaining occupancy Mm. you've got educators that stay but who are the people that don't come to your service and why not and why do you think that we why do you think we should place emphasis on that in your opinion diversity is amazing and it's beneficial for everyone so that's for children that's for families and educators having diverse thoughts and diverse backgrounds diverse perspective diverse decisions Mm. at the table so decision making that is influenced by diverse perspectives is better for everyone we've seen that now with the latest election we're going to have probably better decision making just because we've got more diversity that just simply adding more diversity will result in better outcomes yeah, absolutely. And I just um I listened to on a podcast the other day that they said every board of directors should have a person on their board that I think it was over 60 years old. Yeah. Because what happens with our brains is that um over 60, I think what did they say? Over 60 they start to draw on like they become wiser and they start uh-huh. to draw on a different part of their brain. Oh right. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Well, yeah, look, a lot of boards do have older demographics, so we need a balance. But a mix, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah that balance. <laughs> I, yeah, I think it goes one way or the other, I think, a, right. a young yeah. or an old. But they said, yeah, at least one one person over 60. Um, yeah. But, yeah, a very diverse range, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. Well, anything else you want to add about inclusion that you want to share with our listeners, Andrea? I think it's really just turn your mind to it. Um, try to do it every day and try to think about things from other people's perspectives, no matter whether that's at the grocery store, whether that's in your planning, whether it's when you're writing your brochures or your website, just think about what other people might need to see or hear so that they feel included and therefore then how you translate that for children in your service and how you're creating, again, an avenue for all children to be included. Yeah, beautiful. And I think um, in one service that I'm working with at the moment, they've um, translated their philosophy into five different languages. Um, Yeah, and they've got all the parents involved in helping um, and the parents loved it. Yeah, we're in the process of doing that as well because we need to do that for all of our children as well. So, you know, Mm. it is a process. You just need to have a journey and you need to be 
able to think about things in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. And start somewhere, just start. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Well, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. Um, if people, well, first I want to know um, what's the timeline for the rollout with the consulting with helping services with the inclusion? Yeah, we're happy to take inquiries now. We're, or we're starting that process at G8. So, yeah, we've already supported centres with transition programs um, with children accessing in-home care and NDIS. And we also sometimes go into services to consult on what might be going on with one or more children. Um, if they are finding that there's some needs that they can't meet, we can go in and identify and assess and try and provide some advice around that. Perfect. And I really want to pick your brain about some resources. Um, so where should educators or where can services go to access resources on inclusion? Look, the best place is really to go to your inclusion partners. Um, you know, they're government funded resources that should be able to come to your centre, talk to you and shape a program around your inclusion needs. Um, the other is, as you've mentioned, there are a whole lot of inclusion consultants. There's cultural consultants that can support you. Um, there's Reconciliation Australia, Narragana Wally. Um, so there's lots of different services like that. Snake as well have um, great resources on their website. So lots of different places. And then if you're looking at um, inclusive resources, make sure whoever you're going to, whoever your provider is of resources that you're asking them specifically on resources that are more inclusive or that can support children with um, therapeutic needs. Perfect. And then how, shall pe how can people get in touch with you? Yeah, so they can just contact us on learn at leor.com.au. Beautiful. And I'll pop it in the show notes um, and then that way everyone can access that. Um, and are you open for people to contact you with any questions or anything yeah, following our episode? Yeah, of course. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Andrea. We have loved this episode and it's really given me, um, you know, almost like a, I was going to say a kick in the butt, but um, like, you know, <laughs> just that, that reminder and that important yeah. reminder to make sure that anything we're doing, we are looking at it from that inclusion lens. That's right. It is just taking a different mindset and feeling that it's everybody's responsibility to be inclusive. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, and um, yeah, we look forward to touching base again soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Everything Early Childhood podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media or leave a rating and review. We read them all. <laughs> to catch all the latest from me, your host, Lisa Brown, you can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Lisa Brown underscore Platinum Ed. Thanks again for listening. Keep making every moment count and I'll see you next time.